Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Friday, August 7th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. More than 160,000 people here in the United States are now dead from the coronavirus as many of the nation's school districts continue to reopen. A new jobs report highlighting the lasting impacts of the pandemic on the economy as the U.S. adds only 1.8 million jobs in the month of July. And a top military official saying the army could have done more to protect Vanessa Guillen, the murdered 20-year-old soldier who faced abuse and harassment during her enlistment. This and much more today on You News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with the latest on the pandemic. California nearing 10,000 COVID-19-related deaths, while Florida reports almost 8,000. The U.S. inching closer to 5 million cases of coronavirus, and Texas soon becoming the third state to pass the half-million case mark. Lorraine Gassides has the latest, including a very grim new prediction. A grim new prediction by the University of Washington, estimating 300,000 people could die of coronavirus in the U.S. by December. That same model indicating masks can help save a huge number of lives. It's an extraordinary opportunity. It's rare that you see something so simple, so inexpensive, so easy for everybody to participate in can have such an extraordinary impact in the U.S., but also all over the world, actually. The U.S. is quickly approaching 5 million cases, according to Johns Hopkins University's tally. Experts eyeing the rising positivity rate in these nine cities and California's Central Valley. Really a, a triple threat. Um, you could call it the perfect storm, that the cases are going up, our hospitalizations are going up, and our deaths are going up. And I'm afraid that the death projections are way under. In Hawaii, officials are reinstating restrictions after a resurgence in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations statewide, with the majority of cases now on the island of Oahu. And as schools around the country work to figure out how to educate students safely, on Thursday, the World Health Organization saying the proportion of cases in teens and young adults has gone up sixfold, and in very young children and babies, the proportion has increased sevenfold. The governor of Minnesota Minnesota interrupting a press conference to address a teacher's concerns. My mother-in-law's gonna have to watch him. Yeah, like, no, we can't ask. Like gonna be scared. And just so you know, our plan, just so you know, if any of these situations comes up, it is the responsibility of the school district to provide you the option to be to deliver that at home. In Georgia, a teen who posted images of packed hallways at her school speaking out after being suspended. I saw many people were not wearing masks and it was making me feel really unsafe and uncomfortable to be in school. Meanwhile, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine confirming he is actually negative for the coronavirus after initially testing positive as part of a routine screening just before he was set to meet with President Trump. I was tested. I went from there to the, the airport. Uh, and when I got to the airport, uh, found out uh, shortly thereafter that I had tested positive. Uh, so that was a big, a big surprise. In a statement overnight, DeWine says he and his family immediately went to Wexner Medical Center in Ohio to be tested again twice, adding the earlier positive test was taken with new technology called an antigen test. And they are investigating how the discrepancy between these two testing methods could have occurred. 
but it is common that these rapid antigen tests have, have false results. And after reporting a single day record on Thursday, the governor in Illinois is now announcing new rules to help enforce, enforce mass requirements, including fines for non-compliance. Meanwhile, in New York, the governor there, Andrew Cuomo, announcing today that schools in all the state and also New York City have permission to open fully for in-person classes due to the low positivity rate. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Meanwhile, the FDA is loosening the requirements for surgical masks, citing shortages. Nurses unions, governors and other groups say they are struggling to get personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers. The White House has repeatedly claimed that PPE supplies are adequate, but the FDA has indicated otherwise. The agency issued an emergency use authorization for certain disposable single-use surgical masks in healthcare settings. The FDA warns that this does not replace the need for FDA-cleared surgical masks and authorized respirators. And doctors are worried that once a coronavirus vaccine is here, its effect in the U.S. could be hampered by the obesity epidemic. More than 100 million Americans are considered obese. And scientists say previous vaccines for illnesses like influenza, hepatitis B, tetanus and rabies have been less effective in obese adults than in the general population. Though it's too early to tell, they believe that would likely be the same for a coronavirus vaccine. In Washington, Congress is facing a self-imposed deadline for a stimulus deal, and that is today. But it appears there's little chance of a bipartisan agreement before the weekend begins. Edwin Piti is in the nation's capital with the latest developments. Edwin, what can you tell us? Andrea, there was supposed to be a call this afternoon to decide if it was going to be even worth it to meet. I'm talking about members of the White House and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. That after what happened yesterday during that three-hour meeting on Capitol Hill. And even though we know at this hour the President Trump dialed in a couple of times, there were a lot of blaming, a lot of arguing, and all of them walked away without knowing if they were going to be able to reach an agreement today. But a couple of minutes ago during a press conference, the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi making clear that she's coming with a proposal to the table so they can meet this afternoon. This is what she said. We have been mightily trying to find common ground with our colleagues. It's hard when your values are so different in terms of bubble up from the working class families instead of trickle down from above. Yesterday, I offered to them, we'll take down a trillion if you add a trillion in. They said absolutely not. If we could do that, if we take down a trillion and they add a trillion, we'll be within range. We'll be within range. But we must meet the needs of the American people. Many are describing her proposal as being fair, but the White House still do not agree at the moment with that because we're talking about increasing the price tag of their proposal by a trillion dollars. But the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, making clear that President Trump is ready to take action if they don't reach an agreement by today. Let's listen. I think the good news for the American people is this. We're going to continue to stay engaged. Uh, the president has instructed us to do that. If that does not work, the president uh, has instructed Secretary Mnuchin and myself to be willing to enter into a, a, a narrower deal. And if those two things uh, uh, do not work, then he's prepared to take executive action on his own. 
Now, of course, we're going to be following up because at the end of the day, the pressure everybody was feeling about making an agreement by today was because by next week, the Senate was scheduled to go on a four-week recess. But that is not going to happen anymore because the leader of the majority in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, making clear that they are willing to stay for another week in Washington, D.C., so they can vote on this proposal for President Trump to sign it and start sending the money the millions of Americans are waiting for the second round of checks. Live in Washington, D.C., Andrea, back to you. Have a, have a good week. Thank you. Likewise, Edwin, take care. In other major news out of the nation's capital, the Labor Department reported today the unemployment rate fell to 10.2 percent in July, and that's down from a peak of 14.7 percent in April, but still far above the 3.5 percent rate in February before the coronavirus pandemic led to mass economic shutdowns. The economy also added 1.8 million jobs in the month of July. The department said a slowdown from a 4.8 million gain in June. The number of unemployed is up by 10.6 million since February. And joining me now is Chris Liu, former Deputy Labor Secretary under President Obama. Chris, thanks so much for being here once again on this Friday. As we just heard, the unemployment rate dropped roughly one point to 10.2 percent. What's your reaction to this latest number? Well, look, there's certainly some encouraging things in this number, but I think it's important to understand that we lost about 22 million jobs during the course of the pandemic. We've only come about 40 percent of that back. And so there's 10, 12 million jobs uh, that have been lost during this. As troubling as about 5 million people have completely left the workforce, uh, so those people aren't counted. And even this 10% uh, unemployment right now is still higher than what we had during the Great Recession. And so we know that we have made progress, but this recovery is slowing down because until we get our arms around the virus, uh, we're never going to really have a sustained recovery. And I think it speaks to the negotiations that are happening on Capitol Hill right now. Millions of people have lost their enhanced unemployment benefits. They're trying to figure out how to afford groceries and rent. Uh, now is the worst time uh, to cut off this economic relief. And I think what the speaker has offered, Speaker Pelosi, to come down, compromise, I think makes eminent sense. And so hopefully uh, the White House and Senate Republicans agree to that. Unemployment rates went down slightly for minorities, including Latinos. However, black people continue to have the highest unemployment rate, and that's at 14.6 percent. What does that say to you about racial disparities in the labor market? Yeah, what we know is that in economic downturns, people of color are always disproportionately impacted. Their unemployment rates go up faster, uh, and they stayed unemployed for longer periods of time. And when you compound on this, the fact that we know that the mortality rates from the virus are significantly higher among Latinos and African-Americans, they're sort of getting hit with both sides, both the economic and the public health damage as well. And this is frankly an issue that not enough people uh, in Washington are thinking about right now. And so um, th this is really going to have dramatic consequences for people of color. Now, given that negotiations on a stimulus bill are breaking down practically between Democrats and Republicans, politically speaking, does this data, these numbers that we are seeing now, make the case for more or less federal aid? Well, it should make the case for more aid, but also different kind of aid as well. What we're now starting to be concerned about is that some of the temporary layoffs 
that we saw in the spring are in danger of becoming permanent layoffs. We also know that state and local governments are cash-strapped right now because of all the money they spent for this pandemic. So unless they get some relief from Washington, they're going to start laying off teachers and police uh, and firefighters as well. So we need a lot more stimulus going into this right now. Uh, and it's not just the unemployed workers, it's the small businesses that may never come back, as well as to state and local governments. Now, we all know that hospitality, retail, and the service sector were among the areas seeing an increase in hiring as the pandemic continues affecting many parts of the country. Do you see those numbers dropping next month? Yeah, you know, of the 1.8 million jobs that were gained this past month, about two-thirds were in retail, restaurants, and leisure and hospitality. Uh, and I'm concerned about those because those are the type of industries where there's a lot of interaction between workers and the public. Um, it's also the area where you need to have confidence that this virus is under control. So I'm concerned that those numbers don't really improve going forward and that we we have kind of a permanent change in spending patterns. People don't go to restaurants as much. People don't travel as much, which I think speaks to the fact that a lot of these temporary layoffs in those industries may become permanent layoffs. And that's very unfortunate to hear. Now, overall, is this an accurate depiction of the economic health of our country? Well, look, I think it's a snapshot in time that was taken in mid-July. Uh, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we continue to have well over a million new people apply for unemployment every single week for the last three or four weeks. And so what you see is an economy that probably was recovering a bit a couple of months ago. That recovery has now stalled. Uh, and as I said, we're probably about 12 million jobs lower than we were in February. So we've got a lot of ground to make up, and we're not going to make it up uh, unless this economy picks up much faster. A lot of work to be done still. Thanks so much, Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Take care. Thank you. Meanwhile, tax preparers are concerned. Many of the millions of Americans receiving unemployment benefits because of the pandemic are unaware that they might owe money to the IRS next year. Jobless benefits are subject to federal income taxes as well as state income taxes in most parts of the country. But workers who are collecting benefits for the first time may not be aware of those tax implications or they might opt against having taxes withheld from their benefit payments. People who do not have enough money withheld during the year could end up with smaller refunds or balances due to the IRS when they file their 2020 tax returns. And now to the race for the White House. Joe Biden is facing backlash for his comments about the black community. Meanwhile, President Trump's latest attack on Biden is being called deeply personal. Let's watch. Overnight, Joe Biden doing damage control after he seemed to suggest that most African-Americans are uniform in their views. And by the way, what you all know, but most people don't know, Unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community. Joe Biden this morning totally disparaged and insulted the black community. What he said is incredible, and I don't know what's going on with him. Biden later trying to clarify with this tweet. In no way did I mean to suggest the African-American community is a monolith, not by identity, not on issues, not at all. Adding, throughout my career, I've witnessed the diversity of thought, background, and sentiment within the African-American community. And, uh, this is now the uh, second time since May that California. Biden is apologizing for a comment about race. The way that he talks about race, at the very least, is problematic. 
And there's a lot of folks of color who listen to the way that this man speaks and say, this isn't someone who has really evolved with the times. However, polling shows black Americans overwhelmingly support Biden over Trump. Biden has a lead among Latinos as well. But Trump has a long history of divisive actions and racially charged remarks. He recently labeled Black Lives Matter a hate group and retweeted a supporter shouting the racist phrase, white power. And now he's also taking on Biden's faith. He's following the radical left agenda. No religion, no anything. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God, he's against guns. Biden, a devout Catholic, fired back overnight calling Trump's attack shameful, saying his comments show us a man willing to stoop to any low for political gain. Meanwhile, the president sounding optimistic on having a coronavirus vaccine ready by November 3rd. I am. I'm optimistic that it'll be probably around that date. I believe we'll have the vaccine before the end of the year, certainly, but around that date, yes, I think so. But Dr. Fauci seems to disagree on that timeline. The nation's top infectious disease expert expects results from the first human trials to be available in either November or December. In more Washington-related news, the president issued executive orders that would ban the social media apps TikTok and WeChat from operating in the U.S. in 45 days if they are not sold by their Chinese-owned parent companies. Beijing has reacted angrily to the United States. The Chinese foreign ministry saying that the U.S. is carrying out political manipulation and suppression. Microsoft said Sunday that it was pushing forward with talks to acquire the app following a conversation between the company's CEO and the president. September 15th is the deadline for TikTok to find a U.S. buyer. Failing to do so would lead to the app shutting down right here in this country. Now to the latest on the death of Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen in Fort Hood, Texas. The Army Secretary is promising to make enduring changes after the 20-year-old's murder, but her sisters are saying too little, too late. Grecia Lastra reports. The Secretary of the Army speaking candidly about the murder of Specialist Vanessa Guillen. We are incredibly disappointed and in that we vow for the rest of our time in service and our life to prevent these types of acts and to find out how we could prevent them in the future. Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy visiting Fort Hood, where Guillen was serving when she was murdered by a fellow soldier. Vanessa was our teammate, and we let her down. We let her family down, and it hurts. Her family says that she was being sexually harassed by an unknown co-worker on the post, but didn't report it out of fear of retribution. One harassment and one assault is one too many. Now Secretary McCarthy promising to investigate the culture of one of the world's largest military installations. The numbers are high here. They are the highest in most cases for sexual assault and harassment and murders for our entire formation, the U.S. Army. After his visit, Guillen's sister is telling Houston Station KTRK it's too little too late. It's been uh, really hard, um, especially today we got all her belongings back. So. Um, it takes us back. Now demanding a detailed account of what happened to their sister, when and who knew what. They also want federal law changed to allow service members to report abuse to a third-party agency. Pushing. We try not to let so many emotions get in between uh, what we have to do to honor our sister. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for U News.
More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Turning now to California, a Mexican-American woman with a master's degree in epidemiology is now working in the same field where her family first got its start right here in the U.S. She's there because she couldn't find work in her industry, but also because she wanted to raise awareness about the plight of immigrant farm workers. Luis Mejib has her story. She is an epidemiologist, a Stanford graduate who lost her job in the pandemic and went back home to work in the fields picking blueberries. I wanted to help my mom out around the house. So I have three younger siblings and she's a seasonal migrant farm worker, so she only gets to work for maybe from about end of May through early September. And that she has to make that money last for the rest of the year. Yana Nino Tapias worked in the fields most of her life. She knows how it feels to be one of the workers that most people ignore. I think something that I really emphasize through a lot of the attention that my tweet got and that I've been getting is that um, these are people with hopes and dreams and families and kids that they have goals for. And, um, you know, we don't think about that every morning when we eat our blueberries or when we eat our fruit. She's now studying at Stanford to become a physician. Her dream is to go back to the fields in eastern Washington as a doctor. I would love to practice the medicine that would best serve my community. Um, I thought a lot about family medicine and internal medicine um, because I think that those skills are always useful in our, in our community um, and really go back to my community and be there as a doctor. In Palo Alto, California, Luis Mejid, U News. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.